Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, as we're going to be looking at verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. So Philippians 1, 27 through chapter 2, verse 4 this morning as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. Before we do that, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. These words that are so simple for us to understand, written in our own language, easily accessible in multiple different ways, but yet the instructions here seem so far from us sometimes as we consider our own way. And it is a way that seems right to us. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to distinguish that way that seems right to us that leads to death versus your way that is right that leads to life. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So read through this passage, particularly this first part as Paul is calling the church there in Philippi to a certain kind of life, it made me think of those times when I was a kid when we were going to have guests over, which wasn't a lot. We lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and we had we had some guests that were kind of like all-the-time guests, but anytime we were going to have like special guests, there was like this wild flourish of cleaning and straightening that would go on. It wasn't as if our house was like a pigsty all the time. It just looked like people lived there, and because they did. And we were pretty much heathens, and so like me and my siblings were, or at least I was for sure. Um, and so that's, it looked like that, but for some reason when we had guests, we wanted to make it look like as if no one lived there, right? Like a museum or something along those lines. So in our text today... The Philippians are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul kind of finishes up with this idea whether or not he's actually there, that they should be doing that. You can almost see what's going on in their minds, that they would act one way while Paul was there, and as soon as he left, they would act another way, kind of like when like the teacher leaves the classroom, you know, and suddenly the law of the wild takes over. And just reckless abandon begins, just within seconds. It shouldn't be that way for the believer, as we should always seek to live in a manner worthy of our calling. But it's hard in a world that's actively making it difficult for us in many ways, more and more even in our own country as the the veneer of Christian virtue is peeled off. Even for the last 50 years, this has been happening more and more as we see the true reek of sin and death exposed underneath. It's hard to live in that world as it doesn't dis, or it doesn't agree with us anymore as, as Christians. And not just that, but it wants to make our lives difficult because it doesn't agree with us. And it's kind of the new world that we're coming into as Christians in this country. We'll also reconsider this idea of suffering for the believer and how it works out in our lives in this modern context that we find ourselves in. And this is a continuing theme in the book of the Philippians. 
So as we work through the text, I want to consider three main ideas that show this calling on our lives. First is worthy citizens. Secondly, suffering believers. And then lastly, the unified body. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 1, 27, reading through chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humiliation count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for a bit of context, last week we looked together at this idea that Paul was kind of struggling with the, the struggle between being on earth and then being also, and also dying and going to Christ. Paul saw the joy would, that, that joy would come, right, with his death, yet he knew that there was so much to live for on this earth. It was in service to Christ. So he concludes the previous section by letting the Philippian church know what his conviction is here. Look at 26 and 20, or 25 and 26 again. Convinced of this, I know that I will now remain, remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So again, what's his plan? His plan is to continue with the church, to work toward their discipleship. It makes as if he sound, it makes it if or it sounds as if he's coming to continue their training, so to speak, to, to be with them again and live with them and train them up in righteousness, that they would be able to further this discipleship relationship even more. Yet, the reality isn't a guarantee in Paul's world. It's a wild world, much wilder than our own, where cities are separated by hundreds of miles, and that hundreds of miles is either walking or sailing. That's pretty much the only way to get anywhere. It could be that the Philippians might never see Paul again. They weren't sure, but it wouldn't change the truth of his words to them. And so that's why in verse 27, we have this, this kind of starting with this new section. This word only, the beginning of verse 27, is a way for Paul to kind of say, above all else, be doing these things, only do these things, right? But it's also kind of his way of saying, look, Whatever happens, this is what you should do. 
it kind of serves as a transition to make sure that they understand whether he is there or not, that they ought to be doing, they ought to be behaving in a certain way. A lot of times we're afraid of talking about the work that we ought to be doing as Christians, especially in American evangelicalism. We are really afraid of that because we don't want to sound legalistic, right? And we use this word a lot, but a lot of times we don't really know what it means. We think that legalistic strictly means that being saved by works, but yes, it does, but no one really believes that. A few Christians do actually say and believe those words, but in reality... It's behaving as if those good works earn us a higher spot at the table, a better version of Christian than perhaps the next person has next to us. I was in a discipleship group once where a member said that he was against memorizing Scripture because, and his words were, it tends to be legalistic. What an odd way to view the memorization of God's Word. I guess you could use it as a platform to believe that you're better than others, and maybe that was his fear. Maybe he's seen it used that way. I don't know. But that's your heart. That's the heart that causes that. It's not the discipline of Scripture memory that causes legalism at all. God's Word should be hidden in our hearts, that we would not sin against Him. But that doesn't change the heart of man. The same can be said of the law. It's not the law that makes one a legalist. It's the heart. God's law is perfect, but our hearts still need lots of work. And it is a work that Christ is doing and will complete. We've already read that in verse 7, right? This is something that He will complete, but it is a work, too, that we are actively participating in. That is the call here for the Christian. This is our constant reminder that when the Bible calls us to act right, we aren't free from those commands because of Jesus. We have the righteousness of Christ, and that righteousness of Christ can't be improved upon, thanks be to God. We are right before God the Father because of Christ, and now we are called and even free to work at God's law, to live lives worthy of our calling. And that brings us to the first point, worthy citizens. Look with me again at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of, hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The ESV and many, many other translations translate this, let your manner of life be, be worthy, which is fine. But the literal translation here in this text is behave as citizens worthy. I can understand the translator's choice here. The idea of citizenship has lost a lot of its feeling in modern day civilization. We know what the word means, but we rarely think of what it means to act as proper citizens, right? Because we live in a place where citizenship is guaranteed just because we're born here. Just because we were born here, we were citizens, right? Which is good. We, we cherish that as Americans, but we've kind of lost that, what it means, what it, what it means that we should do, even the benefits therein. Remember in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was vast. It was made up of lots of these vassal states, like Israel or Judea was one of them. And Judea was full of non-citizens. It was a Roman state, but these weren't Romans. 
right? They were non-citizens. They didn't have, so, you know, they didn't have the right to vote for their uh, officers. They didn't have some of the basic legal rights, like the light, the, the right to a trial. They didn't have that. They didn't have the right to appeal to a higher court. We see that play itself out in the book of Acts, right, where Paul is uh, being charged of something and he appeals to Caesar. How is he able to do that? Well, Paul was a Roman citizen, whereas Peter and some of the other apostles who were Judeans were not able to do that. They were imprisoned with no trial. They were treated like thugs, whereas Paul is treated like a Roman citizen because that's what he is. With Roman citizenship came responsibilities, though, you had to act as if you had these great benefits. Paul's appeal to the Philippians to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel appeals to a much greater citizenship than just merely Roman. It appeals to the fact that we are children of God. The child of God has been made a citizen of heaven or a citizen of the gospel or however you want to say it through the work of Christ alone has been made Righteous legally by the very Son of God made flesh. Rather than being born into this, like I'm a Christian just because I was born into, made alive as, as, a, as a baby, right? We have to be born again. We have to be reborn as citizens, as in Christ. The old is gone, the new is come. As we become new creations in Christ, the dead has been raised to life. As we are reborn. And notice, this shouldn't matter whether or not Paul is there, right? They should be acting in a manner worthy of this calling regardless if he's there. And these are the things that unite us in Christ, it goes on to say in verse 27. That we have a common Savior with a common word to His people. There isn't a way to act when Paul is there and then a way to act when he's not there, right? The standard is the same regardless of Paul's current location. This is important. There's one standard. It governs governs all people of God. The amount that we are able to adhere to this standard doesn't change our legal status before God. And that's important, right? The amount that I'm able to adhere to God's standard, which is very minuscule, doesn't change my current standard before Him. And that's because of Christ's work. And to that we are thankful. Yet... A child of God acts as if these things are true. They act as if they are representing something greater that unifies all of us. And notice the effect of this behaving as a citizen worthy. It has a twofold effect. First, it causes evil to be frightened. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them. This idea of you living worthy is a clear sign to them of their destruction. It's interesting. The child of God has nothing to fear because our Lord is creator of all things. He governs all His creatures, all creatures, and all their actions. We are called His children. We are free to walk around with no fear or concern of His wrath. In fact, seeing us should strike fear into the opposition because we should represent the power of God for salvation. The same power that brought us to life will punish evil for all eternity. We've studied this as we've looked in the Old Testament, um, as we've been studying the Old Testament history for several years now, really, and watched as the people of God steamroll their enemies. 
when they are acting as one united people of God under God's authority. The nations are afraid, as they should have been, not because of Israel, which was this small, insignificant nation, but because of the God behind Israel. Obviously, for the church today, it doesn't represent any kind of militant response on our part, but rather a spiritual one. So what is the church called to do? To go into all the world, baptizing them, teaching all that has been commanded to us. And ultimately, God is going to use this commission given to us by Christ to show his power in the world. It's also how he reminds us of his power in our lives. We see that also in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. One sure assurance for the believer is that we aren't who we weren't, who we once were. That God is working on us, that we have been changed, that we are able to behave more of us as a citizen today than we were yesterday, or at least that should be the case. Again, we aren't getting out the measuring stick to measure our righteousness when compared to others. If we measured our righteousness compared to other Christians, it's all the same. It's all 100 because of Christ. We all have the same Christ. Thanks be to God. We don't have to compare one another, but yet that doesn't change what we are called to do, to live this life worthy of the gospel. It is a sure sign to the world and to one another in Christ, that we are His. It's why someone not doing that, when when someone is in the body of Christ and not living as they ought to live, it's why it's so off-putting to the church. It should be. It doesn't make any sense for someone to call themselves a believer, yet to behave as if they're not. I mean, imagine that in Paul's day. The Roman citizen behaving as if they weren't a Roman citizen. They would have been... They would have lost that citizenship pretty quickly, right? And so as, as Christians, we understand it's, it's odd to us that someone is not behaving as they ought to. But there's another assurance for us that we have in Christ, and that is the assurance that we have that we will suffer for Christ. And that brings us to the second point, verses 29 and 30. Look with me again at those verses. For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So the connection here has to do with, again, with our citizenship, how a believer is to live lives worthy of the gospel. And one of those ways that's going to happen is that we are called to suffer for Christ's sake. Notice the language here. This isn't something that we seek out. Just like our faith in Christ, that, like, that just like our faith in Christ, that it has been granted to us that we should not only believe in Him, we know that our faith has been granted to us, but also that we should suffer for His sake. This word granted is literally the word gifted in the original language. It is the gift of God, not only our faith in Him. We know that that is the gift of God. But we know that there's also the gift of God that we should suffer for the sake of Christ. When Jesus said of Paul that I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. From the book of Acts, we we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. I think it was something particular for Paul's ministry and his life 
but also it's something that all believers will deal with in one way or another. It has been granted to us that we should suffer. This is a sign, the assurance that we have in Christ that we are suffering for his sake. I think it's important to give a few caveats here concerning this suffering. This was something that was dealt with in the first century church and is still an issue in the 21st century church because we think of suffering here as a lot... When we think of the word suffering, we kind of have something in our minds of what Paul is meaning here concerning suffering, right? Probably thinking about Paul being in prison or something along those lines. But going out and picking a fight so that people will hate you is not the same thing as being hated for your kindness. First Peter chapter 3 talks about the idea that, that as Christians we will be reviled for doing good. That just by doing good, the things that we ought to be doing, there are going to be people who revile us for it. We don't get to define what that good is, by the way. Going out and picking a fight is not a good thing, right? The Bible gets to define what's good. So treating people like garbage that you don't agree with is not a Christian trait. That is not the good that you ought to be doing. Well, I'm receiving persecution because I treat people like garbage. Of course, you should be. You should be. That's the trait of an unbeliever, not a believer. Unbelievers treat people badly who don't agree with them. What do believers do? We pray for folks. We treat people with the dignity that they are owed as image bearers of God. We love our enemies. We preach truth to them, and that truth will ultimately go against what they believe because, of course it should. They're unbelievers. It's going to go against what they believe We preach to them, yes, 100%, but we love them at the same time. And that's not being soft. That's being like Christ. And if Christ is soft, then then, then what are we? Right? Christ preached the truth and yet loved people at the same time. So bringing suffering on yourself is not the same as experiencing suffering for the sake of Christ. Anyone can make a bunch of people mad at them. By acting like a jerk. Anybody can do that. For the believer to suffer today, especially in a place where we enjoy freedom to worship, it's going to take on a different a different kind of dynamic than it did in Paul's day. For Paul, the threat of death and imprisonment were very real things. right? And there was even a whole section of the church that, that desired to be martyred. Right, they wanted to be killed so that they could show their their uh, their allegiance to Christ or how much they loved Christ, and that's that's not what Paul's calling us to here. For us, maybe it's maybe it's a little different, right? We're not facing imprisonment or death because of our belief, but it doesn't mean that we're not suffering as believers because the world isn't as it should be, right? And you don't even have to be very intelligent to know that the world isn't as it should be, that something is wrong. But as, as Christians, we should see that. We should know that something is wrong with the world, that we are called to act in a manner worthy of our calling, and that acting, that way that we should act, is so much different than the way the world acts. This, always, this isn't always easy in a world that doesn't understand this citizenship that we have. In fact, it's completely foreign to them. It's offensive to them. We face the trial of a changing culture. This idea of a changing culture is not new to our time. It's not new to this country. It's not new to this century. 
We don't, we're not looking back to go back to the good old days, that mythical time where everyone thinks it was better. That time doesn't exist since the garden, right? There's been sin since then. Change is always happening. The point is, is that the change is rarely moving in a biblical direction. It's always moving anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-truth. So we face these dilemmas in our minds as we do our normal day-to-day. The ethical dilemmas that we have in our minds, the eternal or internal dilemmas that we have, the dilemmas that we have in our personal relationships, in our workplaces, even in our churches. We face personal loss on this earth. Of course, we face personal loss with death, which isn't right. It's not the way it should be. But some losses can be worse than death. These losses that we face in relationships and so many others. We face spiritual opposition as there are powers and forces that we can't even imagine that are at work behind the scenes and that we are just merely small pawns in this giant world. And this is hard for a believer to kind of grasp and understand. We have to live with each other. We have to live with ourselves. So we all know this suffering from one degree or another. Some folks know suffering of this world much greater than I do. Some know it very little. But we all know suffering in this world. And it has been granted to us that we should suffer for Christ's sake. This is common to all believers. All believers do suffer. Which is why we're given those instructions there at the beginning of chapter 2. And that brings us to the next point, the unified body of Christ. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Having said all that he's just said concerning this idea of how we should live a life worthy of our calling, he says, so or therefore, if there is any encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, complete my joy by being of the same mind. When times are most difficult is when we tend to be hardest on one another. Hardest on ourselves, even. The Philippian church, we know we're in the midst of some kind of difficulty. We're not real sure what this persecution they were feeling is. It seems pretty plain, even from the tone here, that Paul is, is trying to correct their thinking concerning this. He's preparing to give them the ultimate example of dealing with persecution the right way as he presents Christ to us in the next few verses, starting at verse 5, which we'll cover next week. So here he is appealing to them that since their comfort and affection for one another, that they would complete their joy, that they would have unity in Christ through the Spirit. He says, complete my joy. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So whether I come or whether I'm absent, I'll hear that you are standing firm in one Spirit. And he gives them a very clear way to do this in verses 3 and 4. It's very clear, this simple understanding of how we ought to treat one another. Let's look again at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is hard. And there's a certain point even in our lives where we have this hard time kind of even understanding that there's other people in the earth, right? I often say this to my students, that the difference, and I'll say this this is to my students when I watch them mistreat one another, I would say the difference between middle school and high school students is that middle school students are still learning that there's a world beyond the end of their nose. It's really hard for them to even kind of conceptualize that, that they can affect others with their actions and their words, that others can affect them also, that the world outside can even affect them. High school students largely understand this, and they don't care. And that's not just high school students. Adults are that way too, obviously. There's something that happens to us as we age. We start to become grizzled, jaded by the world around us because the world is hard, and it's so much easier just to look out for ourselves, just to look out the way that I'm affected by things, not the way so much that I affect others, but the way that I feel, the way that I'm affected the way that I'm going to be changed and care more about that. That is why we have this special instruction here. In times of difficulty, it is particularly hard to serve others because we come become so inward. The survival mechanism takes over and we just become so inward. It's become so difficult to think about others, to even care for them in the most basic way. We want to serve ourselves Take care of ourselves because there is a world beyond the end of our nose and it only brings us pain and we want to get away from it. Maybe if we just ignore it, we can be safe. But that is not the life that we are called to, church. Rather, we serve the one who came to earth, who gave his life, who subjected himself to people like us, that we might have life and have it to the full, who gave his life, who is risen from the dead and even now is making all things new. When Jesus came, he said, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And how is Jesus seeing his kingdom come to this earth? We prayed for it this morning, did we not? Your kingdom come? He's doing it through the work of his people. He means to use us to accomplish this kingdom work. You want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Want a prime example of this? Just keep reading. Verse 5 through 8 there, Jesus was the Son of God and gave that up that we might have the right to be called children of God. And this truth is for the believer. For the unbeliever, there is no hope outside of Jesus. There is no hope in this world. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. For the believer, I say the same to you. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is working right now in this city, in our workplaces, in our schools, and he would use us if we would live as citizens, if we would answer God's call in our lives to live as worthy citizens, 
Let us act, speak, and think as the children of God so that people might be built up, so that God's people might be built up to better serve Him and that the world would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to You this morning, we pray that You would help us to behave as citizens worthy of the Gospel of Christ. And that we would do this not for ourselves, not so that we would be glorified, but so that your name would be glorified. That in your glory, Lord, that you would build up this church and that you would see the lost come to know you. That as we lift up your name, that you would be glorified in all the earth, that we would see change not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those that we love who don't know you, that you would call them to yourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to do just that. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.